0: Before you settle in and pour yourself a great big glass of lockdown oblivion, let me remind you that the following episode of Writer's Block Radio Hour may contain material that may shock and cause extreme trauma. We at Supersound Radio cannot be held accountable
1: for any future therapy needs. You've been warned.
2: Graham Bowman, and I've just written a book about World War II called Empire First, Churchill's War Against D-Day. Now, it took me longer to write than the bloody war lasted, but you have to remember that Churchill, Hitler, Stalin, and all that lot, they were hardcore full-timers. I'm just a wee part-time dilettante, so you have to make allowances for that. Now, I'm here to tell you that everything we think we know about Churchill and World War II is wrong. That's a pretty major challenge for two short radio slots. So I'm just going to focus on the two big bookends of Britain's war in Europe. That's 1940 and 1944. Now, Britain could have surrendered in 1940. And Churchill got it right then. He was determined to resist the Nazis. But the idea that he was the only person willing to defy Hitler is patently absurd. And if he was... What does that tell us about the rest of Britain's ruling class? If Churchill was the only man prepared to defy Hitler, shouldn't we just have taken the rest out and shot them? I mean, if they can't provide decent leadership in a war with all their expensive education and privilege, what the hell use are they to anyone? The reality is that loads of people defied Hitler and media portrayals of Churchill as the only man willing to resist fascism or total bullshit. And Churchill was never motivated by democracy. At that time, Britain's empire was the greatest the world had ever seen. And it was based entirely on stealing other people's countries and their natural resources. And he said nothing against Franco during the Spanish Civil War. So defending democracy was never any part of Churchill's plan. In 1940, it was national survival, pure and simple. Now, Britain avoided defeat in 1940, and the D-Day landings in Normandy in 1944 guaranteed victory in the West. However, on this other major pillar of the war, Churchill got it hopelessly and dangerously wrong. He vitriolically opposed D-Day, preferring instead to squander resources in southeastern Europe and the Balkans, an area he dishonestly described as, and I quote, the soft underbelly. Now, we know he D-Day because he said so himself. For example, on the 19th of April, 1944, he informed Sir Alec Cadogan of the Foreign Office that, and I'm quoting here, this battle overlord." has been forced upon us by the Russians and by the United States military authorities. Churchill's own words. Two weeks later, and only about a month before D-Day, he informed a group of Imperial Prime Ministers that, had he been directing the war, he would have been, and again I'm quoting directly from Churchill here, in favor of rolling up Europe from the Southeast and joining hands with the Russians. However, it had proved impossible to persuade the United States to this view. They had been determined at every stage upon the invasion in northwestern Europe and had consistently wanted us to break off the Mediterranean operations. So, in his own words, Churchill admitted that firstly, America and Russia had bullied Britain into support an overlord, and two, left to him the Allies would have focused all their efforts on southeastern Europe. Now, it's a real mystery why this issue of Churchill's opposition to D-Day has never been covered by a single TV program. A real mystery, friends, and we can only ponder the reasons why. So why on earth did Churchill want to fight Germany and southeast Europe and the Balkans? I mean, if you consider a map of Europe, you can easily see it's the worst place in the world to fight the German army. Yeah, it's lovely and warm in the summer. But if you look at a relief map of Europe, you'll see that the whole of German-occupied southern Europe, with one exception, is covered by hills and mountains. The Alps spread across eastern France, Switzerland and Austria, and the Apennines run the length of Italy. Former Yugoslavia is covered by the Julian and Dinaric Alps, Greece has the Tigetis and Pindus ranges. 70% of Albania is covered by mountains, and the Balkan mountains join Serbia to the Black Sea. Now, if you've ever fought anyone on a stairway, you know it's much better to be on the top than on the bottom. And believe me, all these places are even worse in the winter when you add snow, mud, ice, rain, and swollen rivers to the ferocious mountain ranges. And how we think of mountainous southern Europe, the so-called soft underbelly, bear this in mind, contrast this with lovely flat northern Europe, where the great North European plain runs for 2,000 beautifully flat miles, stretching all the way from the Channel to the Ural Mountains in Russia. And just so you know, I'm not making this up or fantasizing, I'm going to quote to you from General Bernard Montgomery his view of the challenges of fighting in Italy and again I quote as Monty said the leg of Italy is essentially ideal defensive country and the Adriatic winter is severe on land progress would become impossible off the main roads owing to snow and mud mountain torrents subject to violent fluctuations would create great bridging difficulties. The country generally was ideal for delay by the action of small units coordinated with skillfully sighted demolitions. And our advance throughout was barred and delayed by demolitions on the widest possible scale. Now that's General Later Field Marshal, Bernard Montgomery, giving his considered view on the challenges and difficulties of fighting in the so-called soft underbelly. Normandy, in contrast, is only 350 miles from Germany's industrial heartland in the Ruhr, and the country is lovely and flat. In contrast, the Balkans are a thousand miles from the Ruhr and full of mountains and hills and valleys and gorges. Why would the greatest ever Britain choose to fight the German army in such a terrible place? Tune in next week to find out.
3: by Vivian C. Lermond, performed by Kristen Green and Shane Stefanczyk, Columbus, Ohio.
4: Hello, Alice. I am Dr. Sigmund Freud. Hello. I have reviewed your patient's statement. You have a recurring peculiar dream?
3: That's why I'm here. I want this nightmare to end.
4: Ah, Of course. How long has this dream persisted?
3: Since I was a little girl.
4: Please, lie down and get comfortable. Continue.
3: Every night I fall down a rabbit hole into a sort of wonderland.
4: Ah, in our dreams our suppressed imagination can break free. All human behavior is influenced by the unconscious mind. Tell me about your wonderland. It's inhabited
3: by talking creatures who shouldn't be talking at all first i meet a white rabbit dressed in a funny costume carrying a giant pocket watch go on he's quite distraught he's late for an appointment with a very mean queen if her subjects don't play by her rules it's off with their heads
4: how is your relationship with your mother Uh, do you find her demanding of stern temperament she is a mother It is natural for a girl awakening to womanhood to resist authority. What happens after you meet this rabbit? It's all
3: very jumbled. There's a massive caterpillar named Absalon smoking from
4: a hookah. Caterpillar? Snake? Sexual suppression? Your encounter with this creature, does it make you feel frustrated? Yes! he talks in riddles i see and the
3: cat uh, cat the cheshire cat with a grin from ear to ear i ask him for simple directions cheshire cat would you tell me please which way i ought to go from here he replies that
4: depends which way you want to go ridiculous creature do you have a natural aversion to cats why no
3: In my nightmare, if it wasn't for chasing after my cat, I wouldn't have fallen into the rabbit hole.
4: Then there are the pills. What type of pills?
3: One pill makes you larger, and one pill makes you small.
4: A curious phenomenon. Exhausting! Let us review. Would you agree that chasing your cat down a rabbit hole is rash behavior? Had you not considered that you might be on a one-way trip to this wonderland? I can't control a
3: nightmare, can I?
4: Ah, but you can discover the correlation between the waking state and the dream. Now you're talking jabberwocky. Jabberwocky? Gibberish. Now see here, young lady, I— You see here.
3: I didn't come to have you meddling about with the state of my waking mind. I came here to have you slay my dream demons.
4: Petulant are we. Perhaps you should examine your reality with closer scrutiny. Perhaps you should take responsibility for your curiosity and acknowledge that behavior has ramifications. I did not choose to have this dream. Still hostile towards the rules, I see. Still resistant to authority. Sit down, Alice. Take deep breaths. There now. Feel better? let us continue how does this dream end i wake up sitting under a tree a wiser young woman from the experience i am this dream it is a mere metaphor for a rite of passage for exploring the unknown it is in future psychoanalysis our sessions shall travel deeper into your psychosis and sort out the roots of your dream anxiety disorder psychosis Dream anxiety disorder? I am quite confident we shall put your dream demons to their final rest. I will see you next Wednesday, same time. Meanwhile, I have written a prescription. Take 30 minutes before your bedtime. Thank you. I really do want to get better. Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) This shall be a case study for the ages.
5: Listening to Rock Around the Clock. This is the theme music from MGM's sensational new picture, Blackboard Jungle. Many people said the story could not, must not, dared not be shown. The picture already has the movie and book world gasping. Blackboard Jungle deals with an explosive subject the teenage terror in the schools. It is the frankest, the toughest, the most realistic film since on the waterfront. It is fiction, but fiction torn from big city modern savagery. It packs a brass knuckle punch in its startling revelation of those teenage savages who turned big city schools into a clawing jungle. Blackboard Jungle will be the talk of this town. Don't miss it.
6: Michigan calling. Michigan calling. Dave Patton here, and with humble apologies to her bard, I call this to a virus. We sleek it, dangerous beastie, oh what a panics in my beastie! You jink a boot and cough and sneeze my murderous intent. I would be late to touch her breathe, we murdering portent. Whilst politicians fashion dither And tell his naughty gang together, You infest my feather and mother, which makes me startle Whilst you sneak about for another, you invisible bartle. I canna visit family or friends for fear injecting other wains and putting poison in their genes. You'll mark hermits out us all, Armor, camels and Macleans, fishermen, farmer, jout with all. Nae worse than flu they tilt its first We'll let this virus day its worst will tack the hindmost to his nest afore it goes away But ah their schemes they thought were best are badly gone agley Thou saw the world laid bare and wast with hunger and sickness coming fast and somewhere's cozy beneath the blast ye thought they hide and joke To crash your evil we surpassed, your spread we overtook. The toll you took among us has hurt us, sir. The gaukes amongst us, surely, mair. They thought you fake, a lion, eh, But bleak and sure like culture past you ploughed along and laid us bare. And hour for ye, ye have surpassed. Our bard, in his ain opinion, lang syne tell that man's dominion. Had broken with Earth's social union, with prospects grim and dear. While forward-looking seers, we humans guess and fear. Hi, I'm Brendan Talty, and I'm an actor and
7: the fully artist for It's All Been Done Radio Hour. I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and you're listening to Writer's Block on
8: Super Sound Radio. <laughs>
9: Fifteen flowers inside those ocean eyes Your ocean eyes, no fair You really know where I make me cry Give me those ocean eyes, Oscar Falling into your ocean eyes And your
1: ocean eyes
9: And I've been walking through A world gone plain Can't stop thinking But you're dying in vain Careful creature mean Friends were tame Left alone It's no fair You really know what I'm in, can I? Give me those ocean like Oscar I never fall from quite the side Yeah. The time, ocean ocean
10: this is Vivian Wilson and this is called Spirals of Inspiral Jealousy. She saw me hanging around chatting to the band after the show. She was jealous. I could see that when we spoke the next day. What she didn't see was me sitting on the floor of the record company office stuffing disc after disc into hundreds of envelopes. She didn't see me struggling to carry them round to the post office to get them sent away to DJs across the country. She thinks it's weird that they've used my photos in their slideshow. What she didn't see was the conversation about the cow doodles and how I explained that I had loads and loads of cow photos that I'd taken while I was studying photography, that I'd used the cow photos to learn how to superimpose images in a lab. That I'd read loads and loads of books about photography and spent hours and hours roaming the countryside, taking those shots so that I could go into the dark room, develop the film and play with those images. My teacher had got me to read about technique and shown me how to do different things to learn about how to make photographs. He made me go to London to see the Anselm Adams exhibition and take out books from the library to understand perspective and composition. What she didn't see was that there had been a girl studying with me who was massively talented, that we were competitive with each other and at the same time swapped ideas. She didn't see the literally hundreds of nomarchs who said, let's go into the dark room and see what develops. Neither did she see the state of my hands from handling the chemicals. She didn't see that there was real respect between me and those young men, that there were times when they thought it wasn't going to happen for them and I encouraged them, and the same the other way round. She didn't see that there was no romantic or even lustful spark, just mutual appreciation of everything that had happened. She didn't see, and I let it go.
11: Part 2 by Tony Vale, performed by Karen Fraser and Glenn Dixon.
0: Oh, another letter to the local newspaper, Penny. I don't know what we pillar boxes would do without regular customers like you.
11: What's it about this time? It's and the threat to the great crested newt, as a result of the new housing development. It is accompanied by a beautiful close-up of the lovely creature.
0: Oh, Ken Livingstone will be delighted. I bet they'd print it
11: if I was a well-known politician. They only seem to be interested in publishing letters about
0: politics. Dog poo seems to come up quite a lot. Although, dog pee is never mentioned. Ah, there's a subject for your next letter. You can head it peed off. Perhaps it was because I used a non-diplume. What's wrong with your real name? Penny Black. It has a particular significance in the postal world, of course.
11: Yes, but it sounds a bit, well, ordinary, doesn't it? So what did you go for? I used my maiden name, Penfold.
0: Your maiden name was Penny Penfold? Yes. What of it? Uh, John Penfold? I don't understand. John Penfold is to the Pillar Boxes as Jean Rodenbury is to Star Trek, Conan Doyle is to Sherlock Holmes and Colin Dexter is to Morse. He only happens to be the founding father of the Pillar Box. I'm sorry. He produced the first pillar box design in the mid-1800s.
11: You seem to be very well informed on the subject.
0: Why shouldn't I be? It's my heritage after all. Have you seen that TV programme, Who Do You Think You Are? Yes. Oh, it's quite good. Well, that's where I got the idea from, to research my family history. How do you manage to watch the programme? Oh, I can see that large screen TV in the shop window.
11: Amazing! It seems odd that after sending all those letters, Under the name of Penny Black, I should get one published, using the name Penny Penfold. Perhaps sending it by email had something to do with it.
0: What did you say? You sent your letter by email?
11: My daughter suggested it. She said that it makes life easier for the letters editor, because they just have to cut and paste the text.
0: Hmm, as opposed to jot and post, you mean? (sighs) Billabot. Have I said something to offend you? You really don't understand, do you? If I was a butcher, would you come into my shop and tell me that you've just bought a joint
11: of meat from the supermarket? Well that would be crass. I would never do that. We need to support our high street shops.
0: And you think sending letters by email is being supportive of the postal service? I see what you mean.
11: But it was only one letter.
0: Mm, It always starts with one. And you'll be sending those electronic birthday cards next. What do you think that's going to do to the card shops? We've got six of them down the street. I've never used those electronic things. That's the thing with emails. You can send the same message to scores of people with the press of a button. Some people are even using them as a substitute for Christmas cards. You'll always have my support
11: at Christmas, PB. I promise you.
0: Thank you for that. But a pillar box is not just for Christmas. In fact, it's a very stressful time for us. If we get too full, we have a reflex mechanism at the back of our throat, which makes us want to bring back up what has been posted. Oh, must you? Unpleasant as it may be to contemplate, a vomiting pillar box is not what the card and letter posting public want to see.
11: I didn't want to upset you. It was insensitive of me to mention emails. I can see that now. I was so excited about getting my letter published, you must think me selfish and inconsiderate. I'm sorry.
0: No, no Penny, I'm the one who should apologise. Threatened services like ours shouldn't take it out on the very people who can help with our survival.
1: Well,
11: I'm going to continue to send my letters to the newspaper by post, and as it doesn't cost me any extra, I'm going to send it by email as well. You don't
1: have
0: to do that.
11: No. But I want to. And you might as well have these. More postcards? I found them when I changed handbags. I bought them when I was in the lake district last year. Open wide and down the hatch.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Of course, you realise that the Royal Mail will get the blame for the late delivery.
11: That's a point. I could use it as the topic for my next letter to the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
12: I remember doing True West, and, and that play gets under your skin. I think any Shepard play you do, but that play, I remember uh, having panic attacks doing that play. Um, and I'm not saying it as a joke. It got on, it got under my skin like no other play, possibly Long Day's Journey tonight, but uh, but like no other play. You know, I literally had to cling on to John C. Riley, And and that play did something to you that I thought it was almost... Uh, is something that you can't even put into words, and I know it has to do with that quote, and that's why I wanted to say that. Um, so, just a couple short anecdotes. And I'm going to make Sam out. Um, we were in rehearsals for True West, and and John and I were, were struggling through a scene, and, um, <laughs> and badly. And we finished, and, and, and the director's <laughs> and Sam was in the room, and the director was going to give some notes, and and all of a sudden I see John kind of going, trying to get my attention. He's like. And, and I go, I look over at him, he points, and Sam's asleep. He's out. <laughs> he's, he's out cold. And, uh, and and we're both like, oh wow, fuck, that's bad, you know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and then and then he woke up and he stood up. He's like, you know, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna leave you guys to try to figure this one out. <laughs> and I thought. That tells you a lot about him, about the fact that he trusted that we were going to find our way, and us finding our way was much more important than him dictating it to us at the time. And that he felt comfortable enough to fall asleep (laughs) in the room
8: Hello, my name is Ian Skewis, and I'm an author and an editor, and I'm going to read an extract from a short story I wrote called A Man of Many Parts. And um, this was uh, a lot of fun to write um, as it consists of many parts in terms of uh, the genres that it applies to. So it starts off as um, a domestic noir, then moves into full on body horror, and then ends up somewhere in the realm of science fiction. Um, I'll be reading this extract um, and if you like what you hear, um, then you can subscribe to my website and get in touch with me and I can send you the full short story um, as a free paperback. It's going to be published later this year. So I hope you enjoy this um, and for the record, uh, my website is www.ianskewis.com and this is the story, a man of many parts. Lisa was running for her life. The car was behind her, its engine roaring, the headlights blazing in the dark like a pair of huge eyes, looming larger, gaining on her. Her heart was on full throttle, her breath hoarse, her legs shaking with every panicked footfall. She couldn't keep up the pace anymore. She felt exhausted, giddy. The white glare of the headlights filled the space around her. Lisa knew she was about to die. There came a piercing screech of tyres, and something gusted over her head, like a sudden breeze. She kept running, unsure what was happening, but knowing she had to go on. Then, right in front of her, the crash and grind of metal and the sound of breaking glass, stopping Lisa in her tracks. She watched in shock and awe as the vehicle rolled over and over, bouncing off the highway and disappearing into the dark she woke up in hospital. A nurse stood over her, explained that she was found lying by the side of the road, apparently unconscious. Perplexed, Lisa rubbed her forehead. It hurt. Don't worry about that. You must have banged your head when you fainted. Lisa frowned, trying to remember. Then it came back to her. They were in the car, and there had been an argument. He had accused her of something. She couldn't recall what it was now. It had happened so many times she had stopped listening. He had pulled over and thrown her out. He got back in and sat there, seething behind the wheel. Then there came a knowing look, an evil smile, and then the raving up of the engine. And the hunt began. The driver of the car, my husband. Is he alive? Lisa asked. The solemn look on the nurse's face told her all she needed to know. Lisa nodded to herself as the nurse left the room. Good, she whispered. The police questioned her. That was difficult. How could she even begin to explain that Brian had been trying to kill her? There was no proof. He had no police record. And that was her fault for protecting him. She had told no one about what had been going on behind closed doors for all those years, not even her closest friends and family. How could she? He had threatened to kill her if she so much as whispered a word to anyone about his true nature. But at least the bastard was dead now. And you say he was driving a vehicle at the time? Lisa raised her head to look at the officer. His tone had suggested mild scepticism. She wondered at this. Yes, of course, she replied, bewildered. Why do you ask? He looked to his colleague, who narrowed his eyes suspiciously. Then he returned his gaze to her. It was quite an accident, a total write-off. Forensics tell us that there's no way anyone could survive a crash like that. The reason we ask is because his body has not yet been found. Lisa felt something cold slide up her spine. The flashbacks were as brutal and upsetting as the persecution that had caused them. Her mind wouldn't let her escape from the repetitive crack of Brian's hand across her cheek, the look of pleasure on his face when he had strangled her cat right in front of her, and that stupid, infuriating catchphrase of his. "'I'm keeping my eye on you,' he would say to her, as if she was a naughty schoolgirl and not his wife.' occasionally adding to her humiliation by condescendingly wagging his finger as he said it. It bewildered her now why she had tolerated it, but wasn't that always the way with victims of abuse? However, all that had been consigned to history. She was free of him now, and such a well-deserved ignominious end too. She wasted no time in dumping all his belongings, removing every scrap of him, even the aftershave, especially the aftershave. The mere smell of him had made her feel sick. She tore up all the photos of him too and threw everything into bin bags. It surprised her how little belongings he'd actually had. Then again, he was minimalism perfected. Everything had to be just so. He hated when things got untidy. Though her lying sprawled in a bloody heap on the floor was a mess he seemed more than willing to tolerate. His paperwork filled at least three more bin bags and weighed a ton. He had so many business interests. A finger in every pie, he would say with a leer, as she tried not to think about the subtext of his remark. The bin bags were dumped outside. That night, she slept soundly for the first time in years. She woke up the next morning feeling unusually relaxed. She was so used to waking up abruptly and dreading what the day held in store for her. Not any more. This was the first day of the rest of her life as far as she was concerned. And yet she couldn't help but wonder why she had felt the need to jam a chair up against the door. She shook herself out of her reverie with a shower and breakfast, and then she went out into the sunshine, casting a glance every now and then at the living room window where Brian used to watch her. He would only allow her ten minutes in the sun before calling her back in for her duties, which meant cooking and cleaning, and being raped and beaten. Even now, with only the curtains occupying the window space, her heart still quickened, and she couldn't help glancing nervously at her watch. Determined to exorcise his vile ghost, she deliberately waited until the eleventh minute, and then she threw her watch in the bin. Feeling pleased with her progress, she flounced off into town, and bought some stuff she didn't need just for the hell of it. After all, her money was her own now. She felt her shoulders relax as the afternoon unfolded like a blissful panorama of opportunity before her. She arrived home and made herself a gin and tonic, another thing she had been banned from doing, and sat out in the garden once more, enjoying the sunset. She stared meaningfully at the window, daring him back into existence, fantasising that she was defying him as he stood there and what was he going to do about that. She raised her gin and tonic into the air and toasted his favourite spying place. Up yours, she shouted, with a serene smile. She had a TV dinner, another thing that had previously been forbidden, and left the dirty dishes on the coffee table. Then she went to bed and read a book. She fell asleep quite quickly, exhausted by all the excitement of the day. It would take some getting used to this new life, she thought dreamily but she fully intended it would become second nature in time. Something awoke her. She sat bolt upright and listened. Silence, but a silence so absolute it unnerved her. She waited for what she did not know. Then she decided to stop being a victim to her own fear, to get up and take control. Just as she went to open the bedroom door, she heard something and froze, her hand in midair, hovering indecisively. It had been a distinct sound, the letterbox flapping. She was sure of it. Lisa remained there for a moment, but there was only silence once more. Slowly, carefully, she opened the door and stepped out onto the landing and looked down. In the gloom, she couldn't see anything. She inched forward, and then flicked the light switch on. Nothing there. Her eyes fixed on the front door, the letterbox, but there was no movement, no telltale shadow of someone standing behind the glass. Feeling braver now, she began to pad quietly down the stairs, eyes wide open and searching for the slightest sign of anything untoward. She arrived at the ground floor landing, switched on the hall light, and waited, her eyes on the letterbox. She realised she was holding her breath. She exhaled long and deep. There's nothing wrong with this stupid letterbox, she told herself. Deciding to get on with her life, Lisa marched into the kitchen. She opened the fridge and had reached inside to get a jug of chilled water when it dawned on her the cat flap. Her fingers recoiled from the jug. She slowly turned to face the back door. She caught a glimpse of something lying there, on the floor, in the waning sliver of light from the fridge as its door silently closed behind her. Hello Lisa. To be continued.
13: Christine Foster in Mexico, and this is Knucker's Pond, and I'm reading it. Here's your Laganer alive, dear. Did you want to take it out by the pond? It's your last chance, I'm afraid. We're having it bulldozed in tomorrow. Oh, I shall miss our lovely pair of ducks. They've been here as long as we have. Such a shame, and all the fault of that old village story. I'm sure it's not true. You see, there was this old couple, was going to be sent to the workhouse. But as they couldn't live together there, the old dears took hands one night and walked into this very pond and drowned. Well, the thing is, Mar Cyril says customers have complained they was having a nice drink in the garden, happened to glance in the pond, and saw two old faces looking back up at them. Silly. But they will get upset, and we do have to keep the customers happy. Oh, but I so will miss the ducks. Such a devoted pair, but I'm sure they'll find another nice pond somewhere, won't they?
11: Saddle Librarian by Benjamin Peel Performed by Karen Fraser I think I must have frightened poor Charles Though he was never going to admit it Who you be talking to, he demanded Oh, I'm sorry, sir, says I I didn't see you there I was just making small talk with my horse, Betsy Girl, here Decided this stretch made for easier walking than riding. Then he asked me, What's a young miss doing out here in this weather? Sure cold enough to snap a wood chopper like it were a piece of glass, he says. I brought you, good folks, some reading material, I replies. To which he says, And just what the heck would I be needing reading material for? Haven't you heard, I say myself and a bunch of other women are bringing out books and magazines to y'all out here. He can't believe that women got nothing better to do than be traipsing around where we're not wanted, and he's darn well surprised ain't none of us have perished. I'm doing it, sir, as I believe it to be a just and true cause. Then his wife, Elizabeth, appears, and Charles tells her that I've brought some read material for them all. She informs him. I did tell you they were going to be coming here and all after County Clay started a scheme up. But as usual, you didn't listen. Man, eh, Betsy girl? Close your ears for this bit. You mean to tell me? You're going all over the county on this raggedy beast taking books to folks, Charles exclaims. And their children. It's mostly for them. I tell him. He reckons, though, that their two babes are too young for books. It's my opinion, sir, I somewhat pompously declaim. I have to readily admit that children are never too young to be read to. Elizabeth then pipes up. That's what I keep telling him. They need to be able to read and write if they're going to get work. That really sets Charles off. Work? They'd be darn lucky if they see any of that. They'd better off staying here. We don't need no help from anyone, especially this government. We can take care of ourselves. He asks me if I'm being paid for bringing out books to them, which I tell them that I am. This leads him into pondering what use books are out here. He believes that he knows all he needs to from what his mama and papa taught him. Then Elizabeth wants to know. And where's that gotten us? We are still scrabbling around the same way they were, only it's even worse now. I want more for our kids," she remarks, with more than a hint of irritation. I thought it was beginning to get a little heated, so I told Charles. "Sir, I have magazines on farming, and on cooking; I have copies of the Bible, of Shakespeare. That didn't go down too well, though, as he scornfully says, "'You think Shakespeare's gonna help us, ma'am? "'I'd like to know who came up with this darn foolish scheme.'" Then, instead of keeping quiet, I just keep on digging even more and quote at him. "'A fool thinks himself to be wise, but a wise man knows himself to be a fool.'" You not be mocking me, he rightfully asks. No, sir, I was just bragging at us dirt poor folk, Charles retorts. Then thank the Lord if Elizabeth don't come to my rescue. That's from as you like it, Touchstone. I believe so, ma'am. Charles can't believe that she knows that. She owns a complete Shakespeare, she tells him. It's been passed down through her family. It was, she continues, by way of a further elucidation with her grandparents when they came over from Ireland. Charles has never seen her reading it, but Elizabeth peruses it when he's out of the house and keeps it safely out of sight. I'm intrigued. May I ask, ma'am, who taught you to read? I inquire. There's not so many in these parts as can. It transpires that her grandmama did, as she spent a lot of her final years bedridden, and she would read to her. So Elizabeth learned that way. Charles can't believe Elizabeth ain't never seen fit to tell him. Part of my remit, Betsy, is to offer to read to these folks. But seeing as Elizabeth said she could already, I suggested that she read to her husband. So he straightaway said they had no time for that. It must sure be tough for them out here, as Elizabeth got a bit emotional. In the evenings, when the kids are both in bed, she suggested to him, it could be good for us. Lord knows we are both. It just might help. Well, I ain't interested in Shakespeare was the response to that. I intervened and said, "'I had a Robinson Crusoe or some Mark Twain, "'as I thought he'd enjoy those, "'being adventure stories and all.' "'Is uh, Robinson Crusoe the one about the man "'being stuck on an island?' Charles asked of me. "'Yes, that's the one, sir. "'I think he would like that. "'Just let me find it for you.' "'Elizabeth asked to take a couple of those magazines I mentioned.' and invites me to come in for a coffee, as I must be frozen to my bones, which at that point I most surely was. Thank you, ma'am. I will. I'll just go and tie up my... Close your ears again, Betsy girl. Raggedy beast first. That led Charles to looking all embarrassed, and offering to do that for me. As he was leading you off, he turns round. Oh, and if you have any trouble when you're out doing the rest of your rounds, tell em Charles Buchanan says you're okay. Thank you, sir. I'll be sure to do that, I gratefully retorted. Come on, Betsy, my raggedy beast. Let's go and lighten your load some more. <laughs>
9: Baby don't mess around Because she loves me so And as I know for sure But does she really want to But can't stand to see me Walk out that door And don't try to fade the feeling Because the thought alone Is killing me right now And thank God for mom and dad For sticking through together got it, oh you think you got it, and got it just don't get it, and there's nothing at all. We stay together, oh we stay together, but separate's so always better, and there's feelings involved. Ooh. If what this is, nothing lasts forever, then what makes, what makes this love an exception? So why, 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 why? why? So when the night women know I'm not happy here.
7: most solemn duty to place you under arrest. By whose command, sir? By the command of Parliament, sir. I know of no authority in England above that of the King. It is upon that issue that this war was fought. Whither am I to be taken? To London, sir. You must grant me a little time to...
13: We leave for London at once.
7: And my children? What of them?
13: We will take care of your children.
7: His Majesty will have all the time he requires. As for your children, sir, you may take them with you. I thank you, sir.
8: Hello, I'm Douglas T. Stewart from BMX Bandits and you, dear friends, are listening to Writer's Block Radio Hour only on Super Sound Radio. Thank you.
5: Hi, I'm Harold Yarbrough from Columbus, Ohio, and I am reading The Hell with Being Good by Glenn Dixon. <laughs> just how important the truth is, partly because our parents brought us up to believe it was the right thing to always tell the truth and be a good citizen. We were bound by rules and regulations, by codes and constitutions. Society told us that we must obey the laws that were in place. They were enforced by the imposition of penalties, consequences for our actions. We were thrust into pigeonholes and off we went like obedient lab rats. Teachers would tell us to discover what it was we wanted to do in life. Whether it's finding a dream job or starting a business of our own, they told us to take action towards our goals and to pay attention to the feedback we received at every step. To try and look at things as if we're scientists conducting experiments. Was it successful? Did I get the result I wanted? They tell us that success really isn't about being catapulted into the stratosphere overnight. It's about taking consistent action, testing different options, and seeing the results. If we really want to be successful, we have to go against our nature and challenge the most common barriers that knock us off our course. Honesty and conscience and the need to be good. The hell with being good. Go against the grain. Buck the system. Put yourself first always and learn to be selfish. Fear of failure is a very real thing. And it holds us back in a lot of ways. Today you are going to realize that you do not have to conform. You do not have to follow the traditional path of your parents. Strike first and hardest. Don't let scruples guide your actions because they are developed on the basis of borrowed values, not your own. Take a minute to think about it and you will realize that our conscience depends on many external factors. Our parents, the hell with them. Our family, so what, you didn't ask to be born. Our religion, <laughs> just a fictional fairy tale. Our country, governed by rich, power-hungry asshole. You better asshole. Believe it, Kick your conscience to the sidewalk. You will feel so free without it. You don't need it. It's just a myth perpetuated by tradition. It's just like your tonsils or your appendix. You can learn to live without it. Break the rules. Opt for the easy option. Putting yourself first is not a negative quality. It's your job to take care of yourself and get what you need. Let's start with my roadmap for success. Three strategies you can use to get the most out of your life. Lie. Cheat. Steal. The Holy Trinity. Lie and cheat and steal. Today we'll be looking at the following. Identity theft, kickbacks, insider deals, pump and dumps, schemes, scams, spams, and frauds that will net you so much of other people's hard-earned money, you won't believe it. But in order to do this, you have to follow the code. The hell with being good. Okay, now open your work journals to page two, and let's get started. I am about to change your life.
7: This is more readings from the blog Cheers Govanhill. This first one is called You Are Not Alone and You Are Not Unique A Man That Doesn't Spend Time With His Family Can Never Be A Real Man. So said Mary Queen of Scots or Darth Vader or Saint Paul in his Letter to the Romans or Vito Corleone or Whatever Me, I have My Brothers. I share everything with my brothers. Facial expressions, character flaws, personality defects. I love them, love them like brothers in fact, but it's like listening to my own stupid self all the time. I get enough of the mood swings from me, I don't need it from that mob too. Can't live with them, can't live with them. But it makes me perfect for living in Govan Hill. Coming from a big family means I'm used to lots of strange people hanging around and saying things I don't understand. We remember bin strikes too, piles of rubbish two storeys high, so the odd black bag on a pavement in Govanhill is fine. Grew up with multinational neighbours, made a lot of noise when we were kids and had nowhere else to hang out but the streets. So remember, Govanhill, you're not alone and you're not unique. You're part of a city, a big city, bigger than it looks, with the crunchy and the gallus and the loud and the drunk. We're not exceptional. Things just seem to change faster round here, that's all. Cheers, Pollockshaws East, Pollockshaws West, Cathcart Circle, Queen's Park, Glasgow. This one is called Govanhill Will. I often feel there's something missing in my life, something I lack. I don't want that to be cans. So I started panic buying years ago. Not because there's a shortage of cans, just a shortage of time in which to drink the cans. I don't want to take the risk. But I'm only drinking as much as sensible, of course. I'm a responsible adult, after all. I'll know when I've had enough. Until then. There might not be any toilet paper, but don't worry, there's 60 cans in the fridge. Whiskey, rum, vodka, gin, tonic wine too. No, I don't have 15 bananas or 8 loaves of bread, but I'm sure there's some kind of peach schnapps back there too. Probably Ouzo as well. Cointreau, Tia Maria, Maduri, must-haves, all of them. And what's that coconut one again? Aye, Malibu. Classy. Anyway, I only drink to keep myself safe. And the best way to do that is by getting drunk instead of being drunk. Getting drunk, you know what I mean. The best part, the bubbly part, the first, second or third. Loosening tongue, flushing the cheeks, fresh air in your head. Better than being drunk. The clumsy part, when your eyes have gone and your balance has gone and you repeat yourself over and over again and again. So keep on becoming, and it might start being better, or it might stay the same, or it might not be either, but whatever goes on, it'll come to an end, and then we'll think about starting all over again. Let you know, Govenhill, Hill, but we will, Govenhill. Cheers. This one is called, Turns Out I Pure Love You All. Brothers are great, aren't they? Sisters too. Parents and that. I know I said some things earlier about my brothers. How it's like listening to my own stupid self all the time. How I can't live with them. Can't live with them. Turns out it was only joking, lads. Turns out I pure love you all. I love you to bits. So I do. Oh, brothers, where art thou? Stuck in a house, like everybody else. Take care, you complete set of bastards. Stay indoors, wash your hands, stand two metres apart, and will you stop talking shite for one second and get around in please? Oops. Thinking about the past there, back when we were together, having a drink, down the pub. It's hard not to think about the past, isn't it? It's all we have. We know there'll be a future, there must be, but the past is much clearer, much easier to see. No Wally O'Neill was the 13th Lisbon line, no big yogi, okay, get a grip. Sorry, there I go again, looking back to the old days, the good old days, a happier time, a simpler time. You can't help it. You think back to times that are gone and you wonder if you'll ever see them again and then you think, of course you will, you know you will. Anyway, never mind all this bollocks, where's that 20 quid you owe me? See? business arse usual. Told you Gavin Hill, cheerio! Tools rest,
14: Hello, this is Kira McLaverty recording another poem for Glenn's radio show. So the poem today was written for Scottish Opera. It was a commission um, and it happens to be called Second Date at the Theatre Royal. Second Date at the Theatre Royal. It was Wallace and Gromit, for God's sake. But I forgave you anything then. Laughed at your mock limp ten minutes before curtain up. Your sister recommended it. She had kids and received wisdom, while we had only electricity. Sparks when our elbows touched. It was almost too much, not knowing we were all set. Me nervous enough to leave halfway through so you could hug me, at the underground and point me towards home. So, uh, 23 years, two kids later, we are still happily unmarried but happily together in lockdown. So, I hope you like that poem. Okay, thanks, bye. Thank you.
9: your glass to a broken heart, tell them lies. If you cared even a little, then you'd slow down, you move way too fast. I'm surprised that you care about me so little and I can't tell if it's true love you felt but For four years I'm yours, now you're running remember somebody else with somebody else. Thought that I knew you well, That I was wrong that i forget about the wee little things I felt back kept to myself For so long Well, well, if I'm able And I can't tell if it's true love you feel But every time am yours feels like It was meant for nobody else For nobody else It's it crazy to want this back we had it all while dead and at last. And it's hard to hit you and fight. And I want nothing more than for those nights when you fell into my arms. And everything's quiet, but the beating of our hearts. Now the sun is set on the life we led, I'll accept. With that I'll follow you into the crowd I'm sure you'll fly. I never thought you would fall quite so long. I'm disappointed I guess I'm glad it has the devil I know Cause it's sure that you never love like I did And I can tell this lies out yourself And evenings I'm just but You spend the night with somebody else With somebody else So crazy to want this back Cause we had it all why dead not it's hard to be you and fight I long for nothing more than for those nights When you fell into my arms And everything's quiet by the beating of our hearts Never the sun is set on life we led I'll accept when dead I'll follow you into the crowd Now I'm sure you've left Life fed except when I follow you into the
1: crowd.
0: You've been listening to a slightly extended writer's block radio hour. Tonight you heard Glenn Dixon, Karen Fraser, Vivian Lamont, Peter Moen, Ian Stewart, Benjamin Peel, Christine Foster, Graham Bowman. Tony Vale Kira McClaverty, Vivian Wilson Harold Yarborough Kristen Green Shane Stefanchek, Ross White and music from David Linus Writer's Block Radio Hour was curated and produced by Glenn Dixon Don't forget to join us next week at the same time only on Super Sound Radio